Thank you so much for hitting the play button on your favorite listening device of choice from wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Duff Tyler, and this is a Duff Set. So I was at the bank recently, and I see this guy come walking in, and he is wearing the brightest shoes that I have ever seen. And I'm just looking at him thinking, what is this grown man doing with these bright shoes on that you would normally see like girls playing high school basketball wearing on the court? I mean, these were like highlighter yellow shoes. You could see this dude coming from a block away. So I had to know the story behind these kicks because you could probably see this dude at night if he was wearing them clear as day. Well, it turns out his wife bought him the shoes. And he made a joke about it. He said that, you know, it helps me direct traffic. People can see me when I'm coming. No kidding. They really could. But the next time that I saw Pastor Buddy Franz, he had a much more in-depth story to share. For 12 years, he was the red, white, and blue Afro Man. This was a character that you would see at Detroit Pistons basketball games at the Palace of Auburn Hills. He would do all sorts of things with the crowd. He'd launch t-shirts, he'd interact with the kids, and of course, he'd get everybody fired up for Detroit Basketball! From the teal uniform days, to the championship in 04, to the malice at the palace, Buddy was there, and he's got a lot of memories to share with us. My conversation with Pastor Buddy Franz, the red, white, and blue Afro man, starts now. So, buddy, when did you first become a fan of the Detroit Pistons, and when did you start going to their games? Uh, I was a fan of the Pistons uh, years ago. Um, when I really started paying attention was um, a friend of mine who I um, went to high school with. He graduated a year before me, Walker Russell, um, who was a hometown kid here in Pontiac. Um, and uh, he got signed by the Pistons uh the year before they won their championship, I believe, or right around that time, or one or two years before, and uh, they—that's when the Pistons had moved to the Silverdome, um, and they were actually building the the new arena, the Palace, uh, which would be known as the Palace. And I uh, really started paying attention then. I paid attention a little bit, um, but I was able to, uh, uh, which was an uh, enormity. I think the Pistons hold the record for most fans because they during one of the playoff games they um they seated i think it was like 40 some thousand people in the silver dome there because they had the, i don't know if you remember they had that big blue curtain that hung and separated it oh yes uh, i remember that very well <clears throat> yeah and so um that's kind of when i really in earnest um started paying attention to to pistons basketball uh i, I watched it on television i was a fan of it um and um, but when I really in earnest started watching it and buying seats was, I think the Silverdome days, um, and that was, and it was an, an interesting experience watching the Pistons play in that huge facility. It was just amazing, absolutely amazing. You don't really hear much about those Silverdome days anymore. It's all about the Palace. Whenever people talk about the Detroit Pistons during the bad boy years and the blue collar going to work teams of the early 2000s, but what was it like to go and watch those games in the Silver Dome? What was that like watching basketball in a dome? Well, the the noise level um, was, you know, off the charts because it just, you know, echoed or reverberated or whatever, you know, when they had the one of the critiques of the Silver Dome is that, like, good, like, Monsters of Rock would come in there and it would just, the echo was just, uh, just all over the place. But it was really cool because you're watching an NBA ball game and it sounds like you're 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 in a stadium watching an NFL game filled with 87,000 fans you know or you know so it was it was very interesting of course depending on where your seats were and how how big the players were from your view that was like probably watching ants going up and down the hardwood yeah and it was and, and you know they they had uh, if I remember correctly, they had the, you know, one of the screens, you know, hanging there, which was, it helped a lot, um, which, you know, when they transitioned to the palace, you know, had 23,078 seats. Um, and I don't believe there was ever a bad seat in the palace. I mean, I've, I've been on that back wall 
um, when I, you know, early on when the when the bad boys was was playing there, but it, they still weren't bad seats, you know. Um, and you kind of had that um, that deeper bowl arena feel. So in essence, you really weren't that far from the court, but, um, you know. So you could actually feel like you're part of the game. But it uh, it lended itself at the Silverdome to being a little bit disconnected, but it was still fun. Fenway Park has the green monster. Detroit, for a time, had the big blue screen. What a great time for Detroit basketball. And for you as you're watching that era of Detroit Pistons basketball, what was it like to watch the Bad Boys era and to watch them compete against some legendary players in the NBA and collect a few championship rings along the way? Oh, man. It was just so exciting. I I was... I just had started my career <clears throat> working uh, uh, in the support staff for Waterford Schools, and um, you know there was there was that it was spilling over in your workplace um, when they were when they were playing, you know, and everybody was talking about piston basketball, and of course, geographically, uh, from where we were, it was you know six minutes driveway to driveway to watch watch these cats play ball, and um, it was affordable. Uh, and watching, you know, watching these cats from all over the country come into your, into their gym, and, and um, you know, my son who is you know thirty something now, but he was still enamored with the idea that I got to see Michael Jordan play live, you know, as a fan um, back back when when you know the Bulls were trying to make their run at the championship, and the Pistons were the cats who were standing in their way, and uh, you know. It just was an amazing time um, to be a, a Piston fan, and um, it just it's something I'll always remember. You know, um, just going in there and 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 I watched uh, an interview, and this is kind of where I captured one of the ideas. Uh, but Bill Ambeer himself made the comment about you know when they would come in, um, it was it was just a given that they were going to win. Um, and just and so that brought the fan base, you know, in there, and it, you know, people just came in and they knew um, that the Bad Boys team, and even the first and the second year that they won, um, it, it was, it's like you know, you know, you're buying a ticket and you know you're going to see them win, and so it's it's it was amazing time. I am right there with your son. I envy you. You got to see Michael Jordan live on the court. This wasn't Michael Jordan on TV like so many of us saw. You actually got to see him play, and in a very special time in his career. It was a career, it was a time in which he really had to develop himself into the player that he was just to get past the Detroit Pistons. And as you're watching the Jordan rules and the bad boys era and all of this going on, at what point did you say to yourself, you know what this place really needs? A dude in a giant red, white, and blue Afro wig getting up and <laughs> hyping everybody up. When did that come to be? Well, uh, the, the, the palace and Mr. Davidson, um, they, they wanted to, um, engage the fans now there because there came a time uh when um the pistons struggled uh to to win ball games and so then that's when they started adopting this um you know this blue collar mentality and then um the orlando magic had um uh, a team uh, entertainment team in-house uh, and they were the fan-based entertainment team and so um the detroit pistons modeled uh, the Palace Knights, which was the first um, um, edition of the Palace Patrol, the Palace Knights, and they uh, um, modeled that uh, after the Orlando uh, entertainment team. And so they put an ad in the paper. Um, the, the next year, the following year, <clears throat> I think 97 was the first year of the Palace Knights. Um, and I think in 2000, 1999, 2000, they had put an ad in the paper looking for MCs, entertainers, you know, athletes, blah, 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 you know, to uh, uh, be on an entertainment squad for the Detroit Pistons and Palace Sports Entertainment. And uh, so um, it was a little blurb in the Oakland Press. 
And uh, so I looked at it, and I, I, I've been I've been a comedian all my life. I, I've done Christian stand up. I've done, a, you know, um, I'm always I try always try to bring even lightheartedness to some of the most serious situations without being offensive. And um, I says that's for me. <laughs> uh, and so I answered the ad, uh, and I I went out to the palace. Um, and uh, at the time, President Clinton was in office, and I do impressions. I I, I do. You know, I started out doing Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy and many of the Muppets. And then when President Clinton came in office, uh, I have a I have a killer impression of, of President Clinton. Can you do it and right so, now? Well, I don't know if I can do that, uh, Duff. Uh, I, you know, you might have to pay me some royalties because, uh, you know, it is a <laughs> distinctive. It's a distinctive type of talk, you know, when when, when you're the president, especially, you know. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> that's perfect. I love it. Thank you. Now, now I got to hear your Kermit the Frog. I've always been a Kermit the Frog fan. How do you go about that? Well, it's uh, real simple. Uh, it's just like this. Hey, Kermit the Frog here for Sesame Street's news. We are here with Duff and uh, Buddy the Afro Man, and we are doing a live podcast, and uh, we hope that you enjoy it. Perfect. I love it, my man. That is great. So you do all these impressions. How did you come up with the get up for Red, White, and Blue Afro Man? What was the thought process there? Well, when we uh, when we came on board, we came in the same year um, that the Pistons traded um, Grant Hill to Orlando um, and for Chucky Atkins and Ben Wallace. And so we came in, Ben Wallace and I actually... Um, our first day together, we walked into the gym together. Um, we parked not too far apart, and we walked. And once again, nobody knew at that time who Ben Wallace was. Um, and I just be candid with you. Um, and, well, I did because I follow college basketball. Yeah, well, the it, but you're you know some many of your fans that are that are watching the game, and then they traded you traded Grant Hill for these two guys. Um, and of course we all know history, you know, Chucky Atkins became an awesome, you know, uh, back at point guard and sometimes full point guard and, you know, and then Ben Wallace was Ben Wallace. And so the first year or so, um, it, there was no Afro that was just, uh, you know, I was part of the palace patrol team and we were doing all the fan base stuff and launching t-shirts, giving pizzas away, making appearances for the team. And this wasn't just for the Pistons. It was for the Vipers, for the shock and for the, and later on uh, the Detroit fury when they came along. Um, but the Afro came along with the next year or so, um, we acquired from Toronto, um, Eric Montrose uh, as the big center. Um, and so the Pistons had a promo. And once again, they're building a fan base. You know, they're bringing people back in the seats. We They had that teal. <clears throat> anyway, um, we were that teal and whatever other colors it was. Oh, I um, hated those uniforms. Yeah. And that was our uniform as, as far as our team, our Palace Patrol team as well. I have a few of those pictures with me wearing them. Um, and uh, then they went to like the grease monkey uh, style uniform, you know, uh, paramedic pants and a blue shirt with all the logos and stuff. And with that, the, the, the Pistons uh, came up with the idea of what this one particular night of, cause we had Eric Montrose and Ben Wallace, uh, Ben Wallace, more a true power forward than a center and Eric Montrose, a true center. Um, and, they had a big hair, no hair night, uh, and you got half off, or you got a free ticket, buy one get one free, or something. And they actually had barbers in the in the atrium uh, at the palace, and they were having people shave their head. They were getting their head shaved for free tickets. Uh, actually, amazing. Uh, and then, and so that would be no hair. And then the the big hair would be they had uh, you know I think as some of our uh, automotion dancers were out there with uh, rulers and they were measuring people's hair how long it was, and so you know if it m met some length criteria they got free tickets. So it and so for that particular night, um, I went in the costume room and Hooper um, who was our mascot there, uh, he actually was the mascot for uh, Tampa Bay Lightning and he was also. Uh, pause. He was also um, Sparty at one time, and at this, and for this time, he was uh, he was Hooper, and so uh, he threw me uh, an afro 
uh, from the costume shop uh, from our prop room and i wore that that night um and it was just a regular you know black afro um and i actually i had a little tiny clown bike that i had brought with me uh and i was on the court on my clown bike with the on your feet sign with that black afro and and i the Detroit Free Press captured a photo and put it in their sports page, and it stuck. Um, and so I think that's like 2001, uh, or in the beginning of 2001, 2002 uh, seasons. Uh, and then it, it uh, after that game, it metamorphosized. Is that a word, metamorphosized? I think so. <laughs> Works for me. <laughs> and so I went to the costume shop out here in, in Waterford that uh, – the Pistons dealt with a lot and I bought me a, cause I, I wanted a red, white, and blue because they were going to a red, white, and blue, you know, they, cha- they change their colors back to what they knew, you know, and that's, that's sometimes what you got to do in order to start, you know, go back to what you know, you know? Um, and so they went back to the red, white, and blue and so I'm looking for a red, white, and blue Afro, none to be found. And so the costume shop had a blue one and then I painted it, um, with uh, color hairspray and I painted it red, white, and blue it kind of looked funky that first year, but then I found red, white, and blue afros. Um, and that became my moniker, if you will, for the remainder of the time that I was with the team. So take me through what you would normally do on a game night as the red, white, and blue afro man. What were some of the antics and uh, what were some of the things you did to get the crowd ready for game time? Well, the the interesting thing is that we'd go out there, you know, in the gym during, you know, right when the when the game plays on and the fans will see just that part of us. Well, it started much earlier than that. You know, we would, we, our call time was sometimes three and if it's during playoffs or the finals, it was like four top four hours call time before tip off. And so there was game prep as far as putting our games together uh, for the fans to play on the court or, or there was t-shirts to roll for our t-shirt cannon or for the, for the slingshot that we launched t-shirts uh, there was birthday lists to do or uh, uh, proposals, you know, from of marriage that we would get ready. Uh, then we'd have a production meeting, all the Palace Patrol and, you know, camera guys. Everybody who was involved in the production would be in the production meeting. Uh, and we would have a script just like you would uh, have a TV script for, you know, any any program. Um, and then we would follow that, that script. And um, it was uh, – and then – but it, when it came close to getting game time, um, we would select fans, go out into the audience, select fans. Uh, you know, we'd have sponsors, uh, and, uh, you know, for a particular game. And then we'd bring the fans on the court for it. And it, it was pretty cool because the fans, you know, one way they got to touch the Pistons um, by proxy was being involved um, with the Palace Patrol, um, and that, which was an awesome thing. Um, and getting them on the court and then watching their faces. Um, and just in particular, we used to do this game called Dress Up and Shoot, where we would bring kids on the court, uh, dress up in, in the actual uh, player's outfit, the gym shoes, the shorts, and the, and the jersey. And they would dribble down the court. After they got dressed, they would dribble down the court, and whoever made the basket won the game. Um, and that was probably one of the premier games that we played because it was kids, uh, and it was it was just just to watch it because they're actually in you know a size sixteen Nike or whatever, and watch them you know drag the whole thing down the court, and uh, that was um, and to watch their faces and watch the fans' uh, interaction with them, it was just just worth it all, and you know with us. Uh, uh, doing what we do and then at the end of the night packing up all of our our things and taking it back underneath uh, the risers and and putting it away for another day and then start all over again the next game it had to be super special though to interact with the kids and get them involved oh yeah absolutely and, and then of course the 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 afro part of it was kind of uh enamoring because people were like well that's that that's that guy. Well, I was just the guy in the funny hair. I didn't know that, that, that it would do what it did. Cause I mean, there were, there were other, there were, I had tons of teammates on, on, you know, on the palace patrol. Um, but I, uh, I kind of had that thing where I'm like, you know, I want to, I want to stand out and that's what happened. And it just, and that's why it was just way, way cool. Um, 
for and then the, the, the kids because what happens is then they wind up that's a memory that they'll have for their entire life um i you know that time I, I went to the palace and i did this i went on the court and i won a t-shirt or whatever the case may be and it was and that that made it really just you know that's the reward behind what we were doing and making we were the game within the game and and fans um um, fans enjoyed that. They enjoyed that interaction, that personal interaction that, that we were able to bring to the game. Um, and, and it wound up being, once again, for an old guy like me to have that much fun, it wound up being a lifelong memory for myself as well. Coming up, Buddy and the Pistons go to work. Charles, Gavin, Javid. Trevor. Yeah. Who has the best student you section know, in Michigan? Close. It's pretty close, but I think Clark should be. I say, I say we yeah. ask our student section. Yeah. Winter is here in the state of Michigan, but hard cider is good for all four seasons. Looking for the best hard cider in Oakland County? Then stop by Fourth Coast Cider Works. Located in the main entrance to Canterbury Village, Fourth Coast has many flavors on tap and some you can take home. Now if you're like me and you like testing your useless trivia knowledge against others, then come on down to Fourth Coast on Thursday evenings for Trivia Night. Fourth Coast is open Thursday through Sunday. For a complete list of ciders and hours, go to fourthcoastciderworks.com. Fourth Coast Cider Works. Quality craftsmanship, quality hard cider. And that's a Duff Said. Support for a Duff Said comes from you, the listener. It also comes from people like Bethany and Michelle, who recently became patrons of this podcast. And you can too. For as little as $2 a month or $24 a year, you can help A Duff Said continue to grow and continue to provide the great content that you've come to expect from me each week. And if you're a patron, you get access to exclusive content that sometimes doesn't make it into the show. So just go to patron.podbean.com backslash A Duff Said. What was it like to be the red, white, and blue Afro man and to have people point you out and say, hey, I know that guy. That's the red, white, and blue Afro man. It was uh, um, humbling. Um, We had an event that was planned for this one particular night um, where they were going to set an indoor Guinness Book of World Records for most wigs worn at an indoor venue sporting event um and or uh, there's a, a a place i forgot the name of the place in, in australia that held that record but the pistons set out to set a indoor record of most wigs worn in an indoor sporting event and at the door of the palace when you came in they passed out red white and blue afros um and it don't get no more um humbling than that, um, that, that, to, that organization thought enough of this old guy here and, and what he was trying to do and what he was trying to bring. Um, and they passed out all these red, white, and blue Afros and they set an indoor world record for most wigs worn. And it's kind of totally random. If you think about it, <laughs> most wigs worn in an indoor venue. Um, and, uh, to look around the arena and because Mason, he got on the, on the mic and we went to a live shot and Mason says, okay, everybody put your wigs on. And the, the camera, you know, palace, palace vision went around and showed everybody wearing their, wearing their red, white, and blue afros. Um, and it, it don't get no more humbling than that, you know, um, that somehow we were an inspiration, uh, for that. And 
one of the cool moments of that night. Now I became uh, good friends with Bob Seeger um, over the years, and uh, his he had brought his son, one of his sons, to to the game, and uh, his son was sitting in the stands. Uh, Seeger has seat, had seats right across from the opponent's bench up the, on the first riser there. And uh, so his son had the afro on, and so I went up there, uh, and I always carried camera in a box with me. Um, and I handed, I said, hey, I need to get a picture with you, Bob. And so Bob thought I was wanting a picture with him, and it was I wanted to get a picture with his son having the afro on. And so I handed him the camera in the box, and Bob had the camera backwards, and I said, here, no, turn it around. <laughs> and so I have a picture, you know, me and my teammate with uh, Bob Seeger's son, who is now a grown man now, uh, wearing the red, white, and blue afros, and it's it's actually I I have that on my Facebook as well. But it's uh, it's stuff like that that you know you, you just that stuff you cannot purchase um, memories like that, and, and it just I'm just I, I was honored to be a part of it. Another memory you couldn't buy was the 2004 <laughs> NBA championship team. They had to go out and win that. They had to earn those rings, and they got them against a very good Lakers team. The Pistons actually won that series four games to one. What do you remember about that series, and how special was it to see that team become a championship team? Yeah, that's why they call the five-game sweep, um, which is, uh, you know, every, if we walk back to that last game in L.A., we, we could have taken one in L.A., um, and everybody's like, why didn't they make that call? You know, and, and then they came back um, – uh, I take that back. We could have won both those games in LA and then they came back here, uh, to Detroit. Um, and it was awesome. Uh, that first, it was game three, that first game. Um, and of course, anybody who's anybody is there, um, for the finals, um, uh, sports, uh, casters, uh, uh, celebrities, Jack Nicholson, everybody's there. <clears throat> And so I'm on the I, I'm getting my games all ready for the for the for the event as far as for the fans part of it, um, and then I get stopped on the corner there right by the opponent's bench. You know the Pistons tunnel comes out empties out on the opponent's bench, um, and then I have uh, um, ABC News in LA stop me. Hey, we want to we're getting ready to go live. Can we do a live interview? Absolutely. You know I'll hang out. And then uh, we have. Uh, the ABC News in Detroit is out there uh, for their, you know, their broadcast their five o'clock. I think it's their five o'clock broadcast. Uh, and so it was for, in just a fit matter of 15 minutes, I I was able to be interviewed by um, the folks from uh, WXYZ in Detroit here. And then I stepped over to my right and I was interviewed by ABC uh, LA uh, and then I was interviewed by NBA TV, uh, and I was interviewed uh, by, uh, well, it, it was all kind of broadcast through FBS, Fox Sports Detroit got, got one part of that. And then I was on ABC News with uh, uh, Peter Jennings, uh, all within 15 minutes. Um, just absolutely, just mind-boggling. Um, and what was way cool, I, you know, I always talked up the Pistons regardless of what if they were in a slump or whatever they were struggling with. Um, and that was what, what we tried to do is say, the Pistons are going to take this thing. And I had the confidence to know that they would. And, uh, you know, um, and when they, when they come on the court, um, and the fan base, and once again, the fan base was a huge part uh, of the ball team. Um, the fans, um, let, let everybody know, you know, hey, we're we're here. We're watching you, and we want you to win this ball game. And uh, so that was, and then to watch them, because I, from 2000, the teal 2000s, um, all the way back to the red, white, and blue, all the way back to bringing, you know, that trophy um, back to Detroit. It was uh, just a amazing, absolutely amazing um, spectacle to watch. I hope you got some special memorabilia from that year. Did you actually get a championship ring or anything like that to commemorate that year? Well, what would have been, what would have been nice. <laughs> now I wasn't a full-time employee and uh, your full-time staff at the palace uh, got the staff rings. Uh, and um, we, as you know, the supporting cast, if you will, 
Um, I, I got a, you know, a really nice uh, lapel stainless, uh, not stainless. It was uh, sterling silver, uh, you know, um, trophy, and it has the pistons on it. Um, but uh, one of my one of my longtime things I would have loved to have had, if nothing else, just had a staff championship ring um, to go along with it. But uh, yeah, uh, sad to say, I didn't get a championship ring um, to add to my collection. But uh, I have uh, in my office uh, where I, I pastor a church. Uh, in my office on the on the shelves is just a snapshot, just a small snapshot of, of the memorabilia that I have in my possession from from those years. But uh, uh, some of the greatest times is when they were in the heat for that that championship, and um, then my my little you know has it's got a little picture of the trophy. It's not the shape of a little trophy that's you know that I have in that office as well. And that is something that really fascinates me as your role with the red, white, and blue Afro man. In addition to having that role, you're also a pastor at your church. And I think that's interesting that uh, you kind of combine the two. Which role in your life came first? Well, I was I started the ministry in 1976, um, and um, it's uh, as it has been over, you know, um, brought us th- thus far. You know, we're uh, we're full time now. I was bivocational for a lot of years because of of my employment. Uh, I was full time employee actually, you know, um, and that worked out great. And then we were able to retire, and I'm I'm. I'm a full-time uh, pastor now, um, or that's, I go to the office every day, you know, as opposed to going to, you know, my job at Waterford schools or, you know, I had other, other jobs. I was, uh, for nine years, I, I worked in a funeral business. Um, so I had several jobs at one time at, at one time, or for that matter, <laughs> it's like in living color, how many jobs you got? <laughs> and I, I counted it one time. I had like five jobs and one full-time and uh, four part-time. <laughs> I remember that show and I remember that joke because someone always made that comparison about me when I was in college because I wore a number of different hats too. But some of us, we just like going to work and doing our jobs. Right. And, and that's what was cool about the Pistons. And, and you, you hit the nail on the head is going to work. And that's, that's what was really whoever, whoever came up with that in the front office um, about going to work. And that really struck a chord with uh, the, this blue collar, um, um, state that we live in. And that really, that's what really struck a chord with folks because it's like, you know, I, I can't afford the, the expensive seats on the court, but I can afford this seat here. And it's not too far from the expensive seats. And I get to see the same game as those folks that are paying a grand, uh, for those, that one game seat. Um, and that, and I'm just a regular guy that goes to work every day. And, we even had a, there was a moniker um, as the players would come out of the tunnel and it was just above, and you might see it in some of the replays is it says going to work. And uh, that's what really, that's what really uh, um, echoed with everybody in this area, uh, that going to work mentality, just scrapping. And what was way cool is they, they had adopted much of uh, uh, Chuck Daly's uh, style of coaching uh, where it wasn't, you know, and that's where you and I know this about Jordan. That's where Jordan really struggled because he was such an awesome player, in my opinion, the greatest player to ever touch a ball. Um, but he really struggled um, to have that nucleus of, of, of ball players around him that could, he could make better. And, and they want, finally, you know, they finally gelled and made that happen. Uh, but Chuck Daly was, was kind of like the – the grandfather or godfather, if you will, that, that three guard offense and that East coast offense. And, you know, the West coast teams would come in and the Pistons would slow them right down. West coast teams come in they're scoring 125 points anywhere else. And they come in the Pistons gym and the Pistons holding 79 points. I'm like, are you kidding me? And it's because that the Pistons and the coaching staff uh, found something that worked, found something that, that uh, put wins up on the board, which is awesome. So the going-to-work team wins a championship in 04, and the Pistons made it back to the finals in 2005. But in between that, we had the infamous Malice at the Palace. Now, for those of you listening who may not be familiar with that, what happened was there was a game on November 19, 2004, between the Indiana Pacers and the Detroit Pistons. 
Earlier that year, the Pistons ended what was supposed to be a run at a championship for the Indiana Pacers. So the Pacers came into the Palace that night looking for revenge on the Pistons, and the Pacers absolutely wiped them off the floor at the Palace. They had that game won. But towards the end, there was an altercation on the court between the Pacers' Ron Artest and the Pistons' Ben Wallace. Artest kind of gave Wallace a hard foul. These two started to get into it, and they had to be separated. So Ron Artest of the Pacers goes off, he lays out on the scorer's table at the Palace, and then all of a sudden, from out of nowhere, this beer comes flying out of the stands and hits Ron Artest on the scorer's table. And he reacts. He goes into the stands, he goes into the seats and starts fighting with Detroit Pistons fans. And then suddenly other Pacer players go into the stands to try to separate it. And then more fights ensue. And you have fans fighting with Indiana Pacers players. Pacers personnel are trying to separate, run our test, and get everybody to the locker room off the floor. But it is just an absolute brawl breaking out. And this is considered to be one of the ugliest moments in all of professional sports. People are still talking about it to this day. There was actually just recently a documentary that was released on Netflix about Malice at the Palace. And buddy, you were featured in that documentary. And I want to get your take on that. But first, what was your experience like on that night? Wowie, wowie. Um, as, you, as you walk back in memory and you look at it, the, the Indiana Pacers were just walking all over us that night. Um, and the score was, there was, you know, is such a disparity in the score. And so we were underneath the risers. Um, for those who have seen the palace, if you look from the, from the TV view, look to your left and the risers underneath, there's a big place under there where we could do our game prep. And I was underneath the stage, underneath the risers, putting all the games away. You know, as far as we were concerned, uh, there was no us running on the court, you know, with a you know victory type of sign or pumping our fists and getting the crowds fired up because we were just getting spanked, and so I'm putting the games away and we have a clear comm uh, that we wear uh, during the game, um, and so we can hear what's going on on television and what we can hear what's going on in the arena, and I hear the crowd, um, just a big crowd reaction, a big roar, and then I hear uh, the producer in my headset say, "Oh my God." And then I hear another roar, and then I hear the producer say again, oh, my God. And so about that time, I came out from underneath the risers outside of, out of the Pistons uh, tunnel. And I, by that time, um, Ron Artus had, had went into the stands. Um, and so the, the, the seats right underneath the basket, right in front of the pacer bench, uh, th those fans ha had started making their way onto the court. Um, and I used to work security back in the seventies. Um, and so I went into security mode, not, not thinking I'm in costume, I'm the Afro guy. And so I went and shooed those fans back into their seats. And by that time, then whatever had happened when our test went in the stands had come down onto the court and I was on the court at the time. And there was two fans, uh, two piston fans, um, that had come on the court and I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, but it, by that time, Jermaine O'Neal and Ron Artest, Ron Artest had come down and uh, there was uh, altercation between one fan and Ron Artest. And then Jermaine O'Neal came in um, and somebody had thrown another beer or something on uh, where we were at. And uh, it, I went down. It was me and Jermaine O'Neal. Jermaine O'Neal, this one cat, wanted to square off with him. Uh, and Jermaine O'Neal um, uh, just just drilled him and this cat went down and all of us went down in a heap. Uh, my Afro came off. And of course, as everybody was able to see in all the other shots and stuff, things, uh, Fox sports Detroit had, had some of the most vivid of that event that night. Um, but I was face down on the court. Um, and I thought this is not good. Um, and so I wound up, uh, that night I had a separated hip from just the slipping and then I uh, had a, had an elbow that had a cracked elbow and I wound up in the emergency room and um, it was, we didn't know. Uh, and I tell you, before I even went to, to the hospital, uh, we were back in our dressing room back there. We didn't know how big it was outside of the arena. 
Um, and I had had one of our teammates call me and she was in Times Square at the time. And she says, buddy, you're, you're on Sony vision at Times Square. And that's, that's when I realized this is much bigger than, than just us being in there and, and having, you know, somebody just got in a fist fight or something. And it, it actually became huge. And then it wound up just all, you know, and it wound up being a, you know, worldwide event in the English and non-English speaking world, you know, um, never knowing, uh, that, 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 that event right there was just, uh, just became huge and still talking about it to this very day. It was recently a part of a documentary that was on Netflix talking about the malice at the palace. And it's interesting because you and Ben Wallace are really the only people that are associated with the Pistons that commented on the documentary about what took place that night. I'm curious, uh, were you surprised at all that they reached out to you to talk about it for the documentary? Well, um, I, yes, I was. Um, I had uh, one of the one of the ABC uh, sports uh, producers uh, contacted me last year, and this is before uh, just before COVID hit, and uh, said, "Hey, we're putting together, uh, you know, four specials for Netflix, and one of those is going to be regarding the malice at the palace or the brawl, palace brawl." And I'd really like to get you involved in it um, to hear your side of the story and hear what you saw and. Um, all those things. And um, of course, through the years, um, I became friends with, um, you know, ABC folks and, and Fox uh, Sports Detroit folks and who I'm still dear friends with today. Um, we, we're, we're friends and, and, and we were colleagues then, you know, in, in certain blush, you know, they, were, they had a job to do, I had a job to do, and we became friends. And so when he reached out to me, I said, sure. And, and, and I didn't know until the piece was done, uh, that it was going to be told toward the story was told more towards an Indiana, you know, from their point of view and what they dealt with, um, regarding how it just derailed their championship, uh, aspirations. Um, because, and as I think I had said before, um, Indiana that year was on track to win the East and, and that, uh, that incident derailed them. It um, really yes. did. It really did because I was a member of the Indiana Pacers radio network at that time. I actually did not know what was going on that night, uh, because I was doing a high school sports show and I was fielding thousands of calls of people calling in for high school basketball games and state finals football games that uh, evening. So I didn't hear about it until the next day. And then, of course, wow. our show on Saturday, we spent most of our time talking about it. I remember the host of the show saying he didn't want to dwell on it that much, but I was talking about it in my scoreboard updates and my sports reports because it was a pretty big deal. Everyone wanted to know what the punishments were going to be for everybody. Right. And that team like you said, was supposed to be the team. This was going to be Reggie Miller's last year with the Pacers, and everybody wanted to see him go out on top. They wanted him to have like that John Elway, Peyton Manning-type moment when he retires with a ring. His final season is with a championship, and I really feel like that brawl just wiped out any chance they had. The Pistons, of course, wound up knocking Indiana out of the playoffs in the second round. My wife reminds me all the time about that Tayshaun <laughs> Prince block on Reggie Miller. That right. is one thing my wife and I will never agree on. When we started dating, I said, hey, I really like hockey. I will become a Red Wings fan if you become an Indianapolis Colts fan. And she said, sure, we'll do that but she will never be an Indiana Pacers fan. And one of the reasons why is because of malice at the palace. She won't right. do it. She will not let me wear Pacers gear anywhere, especially when we go out to uh, pa Pistons games. I'm not allowed to wear anything but Pistons or CMU gear that night. No Indiana gear at all. There's like a moratorium on it. <laughs> well, that's understandable. <laughs> uh, but if she lets you wear a Reggie Miller jersey, I think, I think most fans would understand. Um, and those are the ones I have. I have the vintage yeah. Reggie jerseys. Because <laughs> even if he comes into into our house, uh, I think the most Piston fans have the highest regard for Reggie Miller. And, uh, you know, of course, his sister of, of 
uh, basketball fame as well, Cheryl Miller, who was the broadcaster after her, her career. Uh, but yeah, that it was just uh, that block. Some people believe it was a pin, you know, pin to the backboard or whatever. And uh, so, um, you know, who knows, you know. Um, but yeah, the, the the suspensions, the fines, and the court stuff that went on with in that whole. Um, everybody had waiting with bated breath, you know, on what's going to happen. What is uh, uh, David Stern going to do? What is uh, David Gorsica, the uh, uh, prosecuting attorney here in Oakland County, going to do? And, of course, then we've seen all that play out and watched the Pacer bench get emptied out due to suspensions and watched the Piston bench suffer somewhat, but not as great as the Pacer bench suffered. Um, and then watched – what was a little disappointing to watch some of the commentary from some of the talking heads about how horrible the Piston fans were. Um, and, and I'm not defending those that did, did, did bad things. Um, but I'm just talking about as a whole, I know the, the greater good of the Piston fans was not those few that were throwing, you know, bottles and beer and, and popcorn and all that junk. And they deserve to get caught and they got caught and they paid for those things. Um, but the, the fan base in, in Detroit, uh, the fan base here in Southeast Michigan, uh, by and large were not those fans that caused so much havoc that night, which was, it was disappointing. It, it was sad to watch that happen. Um, watch Steven Jackson, you know, get hit with stuff as he's walking in the tunnel, peeling his jersey off, having to cover his head up. That was just horrible, absolutely horrible. Um, um, but I think the redemptive part of the whole thing is that's that's not us as a, as a fan base. Uh, that's those people who decide to go to their inner ugliness um, and, and bring it out and, and give all of the fans here in, in this area a black eye, at least for the, for that period of time. Um, but you know, I, I loved, I loved our fans. I still do. Um, and once again, um, we have the greatest fans in the NBA. I really believe that. Um, and of course in that, that broadcast of, from Netflix, you'll, you can see where, you know, Reggie Miller even made the comment that we, we have um, a very devoted fan base. And, he, of course, he used the word rabid. <laughs> <laughs> but we had a very passionate fan base. And, well, you had a uh, reason to be. Yeah, amen. We were, um, we were winning ball games. We were winning Central Division championships. We were winning, you know, and here we won two Eastern Conference championships, went to the NBA Finals twice, and, you know, which I believe in – 05 against the Spurs, I think we, we, uh, well, I, I just, in, to watch, watching it, um, I, I believe that we got a little bit, uh, the short stick on some of the officiating, but, uh, that's, that is what it is. <laughs> so when you're coming up for your part in this documentary, what were some of the things that they were going to ask you? And what were some things that you were hoping to get out as part of your message for the documentary? Well, um, I, I think that they were trying to humanize the whole thing as far as um, it wasn't just, you know, millionaire ballplayers who, who had a role in this whole thing, but there were, there were actually, um, you know, just folks who, you know, that, that were involved in it, that uh, have a story to tell, that had a different point of view maybe, Um and uh, that wasn't uh, um, going to be painted with just a, a, you know a blush of well this is this is how I see it and there can be no other view of it and of course as we see you know the the ball players in that that um, that interview those those cats from their point of view you know there there was a lot of things that went on that I couldn't see and so but there were things that they didn't know that I that I knew about and. I think they just kind of wanted to get my point of view uh, where I was at at that point in time on that corner of the court coming from a guy who's been on that court hundreds of times um, in less um, assaultive type of situation. You know, we, we were all about fun and entertainment and making people laugh and making families enjoy themselves. And in this particular time, um, the Afro man was in a situation where none of that 
was involved. Um, and it was just, uh, uh, um, they wanted to hear from, from that guy and what your point of view was, uh, or in, in speaking of me, um, and, and we try to do our best, um, you know, and try to, um, um, tell our story, the, what, what we knew about and, um, that, that the Pistons and themselves, once again, one people should not be defined by one thing that happens in their life but many times they are. And uh, there'll be a lot of times when you mention the Detroit Pistons and Indiana Pacers in the same breath, everybody's mind will go back to that time. Um, and, and it's defined by that time. Um, rightly so, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, that's for the historians to decide. But for us, uh, it was a time um, that we went through. Um, and the thing was, um, we continue to play ball games. We continue to win ball games, and um, it wound up being, you know, a part of, of the history. But it is not the history of, of that of that team and that championship team that uh, um, just gelled so well, like a well oil machine, you know. You were the red, white, and blue Afro man for twelve years. What do you hope your legacy, being that character, will be for you? The legacy I want it to be is I brought 100% of um, me trying to make somebody's life better, at least for just a few moments in time, every single time I walked in there. Um, and I want folks to, re to be able to say, I remember that guy. I got a pizza from him. Or I remember that guy. I got a picture with him. I remember that guy. I got a t-shirt from him. Hey, I remember that guy. He made balloons and made a balloon hat for my kid. Um, and if they remember me in fondness, um, mission accomplished. Um, that's cause that's what, what we're decided to do, you know? And, um, that's, that's what my personality is. I'm always, I always try to leave people, um, saying that was a pleasant interaction with that guy. Um, even when they don't put all my tacos in the bag before I leave the drive through <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's a good analogy. I like that. So it's been nearly five years now since the Pistons have left the Palace of Auburn Hills. What was special about that arena for you? Well, um, I was able to make, uh, especially with the season ticket holders, folks that were there every single game, um, I, 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 uh, galvanized lifelong friendships with them, people that I'm still friends with to this very day. Um, and the staff, um, that I became friends with then, I'm still friends with them to this very day. Um, and I, as in, I, in my pastoral role, uh, there are folks who I, uh, um, encountered uh that were uh staff members or people from center plate and uh, that i married them um and then i've had uh um some friends um that have passed away that i have been honored to officiate at their funerals so um this uh this thing that I, that God allowed me to do is something that I was very honored to do. And, uh, I'm humbled at the fact that, uh, this old guy, God allowed me to be able to step in people's lives and make a difference, at least for just a little while that they'll always have uh, a fond memory of a time that they went and watched a ball game. And there was this funny guy who uh, made him laugh. And uh, I, I would say that that was a mission accomplished. Up next, Detroit basketball is back in the heart of the city at Little Caesars Arena. So when are we gonna see the red, white, and blue Afro man there? Fourth Coast Cider Works is the place to be for hard cider in Oakland County. Located in the main entrance to Canterbury Village, Fourth Coast is quality craftsmanship, 
quality hard cider. Stop by Fourth Coast and try some of their many flavors on tap. You can also take some home in a can or a howler. Fourth Coast is open Thursday through Sunday. For a complete list of ciders and hours, go to fourthcoastciderworks.com. The best hard cider is on the Fourth Coast. And that's a Duff said. Once again, I want to say thank you so much for hitting the play button on this podcast. And that includes two very special listeners, Michelle and Bethany. They recently became patrons of a Duff set. Now for as little as $2 a month or $24 a year, you can help this show to continue to grow and provide the content that you enjoy. And if you become a patron of a Duff said, we have got a lot of great gifts in store for you. We've got bumper stickers. We've got t-shirts. Heck, I'll even record your voicemail message. So if you're having trouble ever figuring out what to say, I'll say it for you. And that's A Duff Said. If you'd like to become a patron of A Duff Said, all you got to do is go to patron.podbean.com backslash A Duff Said. Nowadays, the Detroit Pistons play their games at Little Caesars Arena in downtown Detroit. But buddy, you chose not to follow them downtown. What led you to the decision not to go with them and continue that role as the red, white, and blue Afro man? Well, uh, a couple different things. Um, was First thing, I, I, be, I was took on a full-time pastor. Um, I was already pastor, and then I retired, and I came full-time pastor, and then I um, Another part of that was I felt it was time for me to, you know, step aside. Um, a lot of folks didn't realize how, what my age was back in those days. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I'm 61 years old and, I, and just a few years ago, that would make me in my mid fifties. Uh, um, <laughs> and then, um, look, the little Caesars arena, um, for, um, for me, um, it really didn't strike as 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 being home and uh and it doesn't mean that i don't support them uh you know the ball players and support the team as far as um but i just don't have that drive to go to detroit as far as in that inner drive um and uh um there are entertainment squads there but the hugest hugest is that a word but the hugest um i guess part of that is when mr davison sold the team um, it, 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 it changed. And, uh, this is not a, not a knock or, or criticism other than an observation of Tom Gores. Um, he took the team in a different direction. He took the entertainment part of that and took it in a different direction. And, uh, I thought, well, this is time, uh, time for me to step back. And uh, that's what we chose to do. And, uh, um, and I look back with no regrets and, um, I'll look back with a heart of fondness on, on the years that I had with the team. And uh, we wish them the best uh, down in Detroit. I'd really love to see them. Personally, I'd love to see them have their own arena um, that, you know, like the Palace. It was their gym. And uh, there's something to be said when I walk into a place, this is my house. Um, and uh, and I, once again, I can't speak for the ball players. You know, um, ball players may walk in and say, "Yeah, this is my house, and this is where I play basketball." And um, but from a fan base and from a personal level, um, you know, the palace in itself had a certain aura about it. Um, it's like the Staples Center, or you know, uh, like uh, United Center, and like the other gyms around the country that the ball players. This is their gym. There's a certain amount of you know being at home and, uh, and, you know, going down to LCA, um, it's, it's, uh, the, uh, the Red Wings house and the, and the Pistons, they play basketball there. And I understand you can do that. Um, but, uh, I guess that's my long answer to should have, should have been a short answer, but that's, that's what it is. <laughs> no, that's fascinating. I, I'm really glad that you took the time to lay all that out because I was just curious as to, you know, what was it to, <clears throat> that led you decide to stay back here in Auburn Hills? 
have you been to a game at all at LCA since they've moved over there? Yeah, no, I sure haven't. I sure haven't. Um, I have a uh, um, couple people that actually, when I was working here at the Palace, um, there's a couple people that work there um, that have moved down there that have moved up and they, they're working very hard uh, every day. Um, but uh, the uh, I've, I've really not had the, the, the want to to go down there um, and since uh, your days at the palace are now over, you, I know you do some things here and there with the red, white, and blue Afro man. I know you do some appearances every now and then, but could there ever be a situation where we might see him at a big event or out in public again in that getup? Well, who knows? Uh, time will tell. Um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, I would be open to that idea. Um, I was approached at one time, um, right at the transition period where we were, we were, um, um, backing away and we were retiring from the Pistons. Um, Tom Wilson and a, a couple other folks left PSA, uh, uh, and they went and worked for Illich Holdings. And so I had an opportunity to go and, uh, be who I was down at Tiger stadium, not Tiger stadium, Comerica park. Um, but the enticement wasn't just, it wasn't going to be the same. Um, and, uh, but yes, we, we may, uh, the short answer is yes, there's possibly a time uh, that we could be coaxed uh, to do this or that. Um, and, and the Afro man lives on, he lives on anyway uh, in celluloid somewhere. <laughs> One of the things that we have been trying to do, uh, and it just came to my mind as we're wrapping up, um, we're trying to get a, a palace patrol reunion of the old old palace patrol guard uh, us uh, us originals um, and uh, to come down to the LCA for one game you know the Afro man and uh, Steve Coleman who's uh, QTMC uh, and Big Dave uh, and a few others there's I think there's five of us that are in the original nucleus of the palace patrol and we've really been, I talked, we, we've talked behind the scenes about, you know, getting a hold of the, uh, the producer down there and, uh, you know, say, Hey, let us come back for, for one game and do something. Um, but that has fallen on deaf ears at this point. But, uh, anyway, that, that would be kind of cool. Um, I got to, you know, to, to go back just for one game, you know, launch some t-shirts from the court, you know, it's old palace patrol. And because I tell you what, it's, uh, there's nothing i kid you not man there's nothing like getting on the court launching t-shirts um and you've been there when that's happened and oh yeah watching, i've never caught watching, one though yeah watching the crowd just absolutely go bonkers uh or go on the court um from you know when you go into a hot timeout or something you go on the court with the on your feet sign and and then they play you know shout by the isley brothers and watching the fans just go absolutely bonkers and you're on the, you're on the court and you're, you're making that happen, man. Oh man. It's just so exhilarating, exciting. And so anyway, I digress. <laughs> well, I was still rolling on all of what you just said. I could include that in the podcast for next week. Yeah, yeah that'd be fine. That'd be if, fine. Brother. If you would like to hear everybody say that you would like to have that palace patrol reunion and to get back on the court, I can include all of that if you're okay with it. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will edit that in for, just for you. Who knows? It may give birth to something really cool for for one night. You know, hey, I, I hope you'll so. Be a, yeah, I you'd can be a say part I of have that. Part of that. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Awesome. I appreciate you, buddy, France, making some time this week to tell me the story of the red, white, and blue Afro man. Thank you so much for sharing that with everybody. I really hope that we get to see him again someday because. I only knew about your character because I saw you on the Netflix documentaries and I just said to myself, there's a story to this guy and I want to hear it. So I really appreciate you taking the time to lay all that out and describe the history of the red, white, and blue Afro man. Pastor Buddy right. France, thank you so much for making some time this week on A Duff Said. I appreciate it, Duff. Take care. Happy New Year to you. Many thanks once again to Pastor Buddy Franz for making some time on this edition of A Duff Said. 
Now, if you're hearing this podcast for the very first time, please be sure to check out my website, aduffsaid.com. There you will find the previous 51 episodes that I have done with this podcast. You can hear this show on Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and YouTube. You can also get updates on upcoming shows and other info by going to my Facebook page, Sports Journalist Duff Tyler. You can also find info on the show on Twitter by going to Duff Tyler. Until next time, this is Duff Tyler reminding you that if Duff said it, it must be true. Because that's what a Duff said.